Malachi chapter 1 verse 6 to chapter 2 verse 9. A son honors his son. A fa- sorry, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or deceased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or deceased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Great, well thanks, Queenie. So I wonder if uh, any of you know the movie Crazy Rich Asians? Oh yes. Uh, Oh yes, all right, well. uh, This romantic comedy follows the story of one extremely wealthy family from Singapore. 
Uh, one of my favorite scenes is actually the very first scene of the movie. Uh, we see this wealthy family walk into this five-star hotel. Uh, they're tired, uh, they're wet from the rain, and one of the managers from the hotel approaches them, comes over, and not knowing who they are, uh, basically tells them to get lost. Uh, they don't belong in this private hotel, and uh, they should go find accommodation uh, maybe in Chinatown. After going back and forth a bit, then the owner, um, well, here's the manager here, uh, the owner of the hotel comes down and he greets the family. Uh, he, he knows of them, and to the manager's great shock, he announces that actually this family are the new owners of the hotel. They have just purchased the entire hotel and now own it. And so the manager, of course, he's left with his jaw dropped and most likely without a job uh, for the way that he treated such honored and respected guests, the now owners. Uh, so what did this manager do wrong? Well, he failed to judge the worth of this family rightly. As a result, he ended up treating them without the respect and the honor that they deserved to his demise and his shame. Well, in our passage today, we'll see that God's people, the Israelites, were not giving God the honor and respect that he rightly deserved in worship. They had become spiritually apathetic. Their worship of God had become empty. They started to treat him as if he was worth little. And not just them, but the priests as well. They were allowing God's people to disregard him and bring in these unclean sacrifices. I wonder if you've ever experienced this kind of going through the motions of worship. Maybe you've wondered, does God actually care what I do when I worship him? Well, that's what the nation had fallen into here. And so God is going to warn them in order to draw their hearts back to himself. And so I think we'll see two main things here that God's going to warn them against. You'll see them on your handout if you have that in front of you. Unacceptable worship and defective leaders. So those will be our two points this morning. And so first, unacceptable worship. Look at verse 6 with me. You see it up on the screen as well. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? So, similarly to what we saw last week, there's this conversation going on between God and his people. God starts by asking them, uh, where is his honor? If he is their father, as he has proven, and their master, how come he's not being respected like a, like a human father or a human master would be? And so he accuses them of showing contempt for his name, uh, treating his name as if it's meaningless. Now, last week we saw Israel, of course, question God's love for them. But now God's going to flip the question. What should be questioned is not God's love for the Israelites, but Israel's love for God. 
How does Israel respond? Once again, they're defensive. How have we defiled you, God? We don't see this. And so the Lord zeroes in then on the main issue there in verse 7 and 8. Here's what's going on. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So back when God made his covenant with Israel, one of the major problems, of course, with their relationship was Israel's sin. How could God draw near to people who sin against him, who were unclean? And so God, out of a great love for them, he offered a solution. Uh, What they could do is bring an animal to receive the punishment for sin in their place. But for this to work, these animals had to be spotless and healthy. And the person offering this sacrifice had to do it in faith, really and seriously repenting of their sin. And when done in faith, this sacrifice did provide a temporary covering of their sin. Uh, The Lord is very clear on what kind of animal they should bring. There's multiple places they see this. For example, Deuteronomy 15.21 says this, If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So then you can see the problem here. Uh, These people are making sacrifices that are unacceptable, unclean. Rather than bringing their best, they essentially uh, turn to the landfill. You know, what's the most worthless thing we can bring in for the offering? You can imagine them thinking, oh, that's right, we have to bring another offering in today. Uh, Don't we have that three-legged goat out back? He's really sick. He's on his last days anyway. Let's just bring him. So the Lord says, uh, he drives the point even further. You know, next time the governor invites you over, try bringing him this sick goat. What would he think? I think for us, we can think about people in our own lives that we ought to show respect for. Uh, Imagine hosting a meal for your boss at work or a political leader or uh, maybe a teacher or a grandparent. Of course, you'd want to put great care into that meal. You certainly wouldn't want to offer them something unclean that would dishonor them. Our family uh, just celebrated Thanksgiving this past Thursday. And the big deal, of course, is uh, cooking the turkey. Uh, Whoever's job it is to cook this turkey, really the whole day like rises and falls on the job they do, right? Um, And I will say... Uh, To my great delight, our friends who prepared the turkey did a great job. It tasted wonderful, well done. But imagine if our friends, instead of paying for a really nice turkey, uh, they they went out back, they found kind of this weird little turkey wandering around in the woods. It's kind of sick looking and skinny, lost a bunch of feathers. And they said, yeah, that's the one we want. Let's bring him nice and cheap. You know, it's easy to see what that would communicate to us. Yeah, who cares? Who cares what they think? If you wouldn't do that for a mere human who you respect, try doing that to the, 
uh, try doing the equivalent to the God of the universe, whom you owe everything. So the problem wasn't that they were just, you know, missing the exact letter of the law. It's their attitudes. It's the refusal of reverence to their father. For us, then, I don't think it's difficult to see how this translates to our own context. God desires his people to honor him and revere him. And God, as our highest good, our creator, the king of the universe, our our father, he of all people deserves heartfelt worship from us. Christians ought to be those that treat God with honor, who view his name as the most treasured and prized name in our lives. And not with our leftovers, but with our very best. In verse 9 and 10, God makes his response clear to their apathetic attitudes. He says, I am not pleased with you. I will accept no offering from your hand. Oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. So a a complete closure of the temple would be better than them persisting in this half-hearted worship. So I think this kind of passage should sober us a bit. It should humble us before the Lord. It should cause us sorrow for the ways we've treated him lightly. It should convict us for ways in which we've disregarded him, uh, if we've lived in a way that displeases him, or we've come to worship in a way that displeases him. So friends, has worship become something that's hollow to you? If you're honest, are there areas where you're just going through the motions? At times, is what you offer to him your leftovers? Or perhaps it's not that we're outright disobedient towards God. It could just be that we're bored with him. And that's what the Lord accuses Israel of there in verses 12 and 13. If you look there in your passage, they say, what a burden. Do we really have to go worship God again this morning? Can I just skip Bible reading for a while? What a burden. There's so much else I'd rather be doing with my time. Now, we need to be clear, since we are in the new covenant in Christ, uh, Christ has come. If we are in him, we are pleasing to the Lord, not based on our own obedience, but Christ's obedience in our place. But that doesn't mean, then, that God doesn't care at all about how we worship him, or that our intimacy with the Lord doesn't suffer when we bring him our leftovers. I think the truth is, when we Uh, When we bring the Lord our leftovers, we rob ourselves of the joy of worshiping him. Worshiping him is what we were made to do. It's the source of our highest good and our joy. But I think if we're honest, all of us can struggle at times to bring our best to God. We can easily fall into what Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 15. Uh, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So then, if that is the case, how can we be growing in this? How do we avoid half-hearted worship? How do we avoid um, 
Romans 12, you know, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. How do we grow in pleasing God? Well, first and foremost, I think we need to remember afresh God's goodness and his greatness in our lives. That's what God reminds the people here of in verse 11. If you look at verse 11, the Lord says this, My name is great, or will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And then similarly in verse 14, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. God reminds his people here that he and he alone is worthy of their worship, for he is a great king, and his name will be great. He requests that they acknowledge his greatness and his power and his glory. As we see in Revelation chapter 4, 11, in fact, everyone does this. The angels do this. They say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The God we approach in worship, friends, is the one who holds the galaxy together at this very moment, who's given you breath this morning. The God we approach is the God who, whenever someone disobeys his commands about entering his presence in the temple, they died instantly. The God we approach is the God who the author of Hebrews calls a consuming fire. God is uh, not to be trifled with. Uh, When my one-year-old, August, grabs our cat's tail and pulls with all his might, uh, he gets a claw to the face. Uh, He quickly learns then a certain reverence for our cat. You can't just grab its tail whenever you want. There's a certain way to approach the cat, a certain respect you should have for it. In a similar way, there's a certain way God wants to be approached. We approach him on his terms, for he is holy and mighty. We can't just approach him haphazardly, flippantly. But we don't only revere God because of his greatness, but also the goodness of his character. Just think about this question. Why is it that God wants us to worship him in the first place? Well, God doesn't ask people to keep rules simply for rules' sake. He wants their hearts. He wants our hearts. God doesn't need our stuff. He doesn't need our praise. He wants us. He wants our affection. That was the whole point of the sacrificial system. Uh, He wants people to come in faith, feeling the weight of their sin, and to come in faith and trust that God will be forgiving, that he's a good God who loves to respond to people who love him. And if Israel had plenty of reason to worship God for his goodness and his mercy, how much more do we have who've seen all his promises come true in Jesus, who have been adopted into his family, who can now with confidence be assured of salvation and innocence and freedom from sin? 
lest we think that God's desire for reverence means that we, we always must be terrified of him or keep our distance from him, we look to the gospel. When we failed to worship God as he deserves, God sent Christ, who worshipped perfectly in our place. Rather than standing in front of this powerful God in terror, we can now stand in joy as we would our Father, fully forgiven. What an amazing God we serve. Well, the second way then we avoid half-hearted worship is connected to this first, uh, which is to create habits then that orient our minds on his goodness and his greatness. So as you attend corporate worship on a Sunday, for instance, uh, what are some things you could do to prepare your heart to come worship God? Uh, maybe a few suggestions would be, uh, first, consider spending time in prayer on your own, maybe on your commute into Admiralty. Uh, maybe pray that God would help you worship him rightly, that your heart would be warmed by his word that morning. Or maybe consider joining the pre-service prayer uh, that's right here at 10 a.m. in this room next door. If you haven't prayed with this group before, it just started a couple months ago, uh, I think you'll be surprised at the difference it makes by simply praying and hearing others pray for the service. It can really warm your heart in ways that will delight you. How much more ready you'll be to sing and pray. Or if you're not able to do that, maybe simply come three minutes early and sit and listen to the, the preparation song that the music team leads before the service starts. Allow some time to push out other distractions or things that make God seem small to you and, and really treasure him for a few moments before worship starts. Friends, if you find that you're coming into worship with your heart cold, uh, these kinds of practices can act like an ignition to jumpstart your heart. Whatever the case and whatever the circumstances of worship, whether corporate or maybe reading on your own, uh, some kind of habits that work for you uh, are something you should prioritize and, and encourage each other in as well. Well then, the second thing that God is going to call out in our passage then is the priests. So, number two, we see uh, defective leaders. So, now that God has warned the nation about their half-hearted worship, he's going to call out these priests specifically, uh, those he sees as ultimately responsible for what's going on. So if a diseased animal is brought to the temple, uh, it's the priest's role to protect it, uh, protect God's holiness, and reject the offering. But instead, these guys were just letting people bring whatever they wanted. And so the Lord threatens to take away their blessings and to curse them. If you look at verse 1 and 3, uh, there's this graphic image. Um, the Lord says, he'll smear dung on their faces and take them away with it. Uh, this was referring to the unclean parts of the animal. As the priest, you know, would, would clean out this unclean and take it outside of the camp in their preparations. And so God is basically saying, just as those parts are unclean, you yourselves are unclean. You will be removed from worship. 
think one of the reasons the Lord is so upset with them is that he's established priests to protect and revere his name. Uh, And many previous priests had done so. So if we look at verse 4 and 5, the Lord says this, And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Malachi appeals to this covenant with the Levite priests, uh, really to contrast uh, the corrupt priests of his day with the ideal priests that were promised in this covenant. And so I think what we see then for the rest of the passage is a small picture of what God intends the ideal priest uh, to look like. So then we read uh, in verse 6, True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty and the people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So whether here this morning you are a leader in some respect or or simply a a Christian, a part of the royal priesthood of all believers, as 1 Peter will say, I think there's a couple things we learn from the way the priests fail in their roles. The first is that we see that leaders must be those who walk closely with God. So the priests, uh, the priests... um, of Levi walked with me in peace and uprightness, but these priests have turned from the way. Uh, Their failure began with their personal lives. Ultimately, they lost love for their father and reverence for their master. Uh, This is the important quality of any leader. If there's one thing to measure a Christian leader by, it's this, how are they walking with God? How are they pursuing holiness in their own lives? Do they revere him? Do they take his word seriously? Do they not only preach truth, but live in a way that treats their family and their church members with respect and love? Do they seek repentance when they sin? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in their lives? Uh, We are those who aspire to be Christian leaders of any kind. Um, Your talents... Your skills, your charisma even, are all secondary. What you need to focus on if you aspire to be a leader primarily is your walk with the Lord. That's what's going to make or break you. And then we also see, I think, the need for good leaders to turn God's people away from sin. So in verse 6, we see that the priests have turned many, uh, the priests of Levi have turned many away from sin, but these priests have caused many to stumble. Not only did they uh, fail to point people towards the truth, but they also failed to turn them away from what they were doing wrong. And in doing so, they led them astray. Supposedly, they might have thought this was okay. Uh, This might even have been a loving thing to accept these people's offerings. You know, oh, here's this guy, he's 
brought a blind goat for its sacrifice, but let's just have some grace on him. Uh, we certainly want, wouldn't want to hurt his feelings. I mean, look at, at least he brought something, right? Turning a blind eye towards people's sin may seem like love, but it's not. As much as tolerance is the highest virtue in our age, God's word teaches that true life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so as leaders, letting God's people do whatever they please is not love. It's self-preservation. It's preferring others' approval over the Lord's. Because then what's at stake in these And there's priests allowing this. It's the people's very souls. Jesus himself gave one of the harshest rebukes to those who were doing what we see the priests doing. In Matthew 18, uh, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so if we are leaders, we should heed this warning. We must be those who revere God, who take his word seriously, who have the courage uh, to gently but seriously stand for the truth of God's word, not allowing for compromise. The stakes are simply too high to do anything else. Now, obviously, this is a heavy and hard word for the nation and specifically for these priests. As the Israelites might have heard this from Malachi's mouth, you can imagine them thinking something like, can we just have a good priest? Can't there just be one who would have the courage to take God's word seriously, who would walk closely with God? who would shut the temple doors when God's house was being abused, who would offer up a right sacrifice for the people so that they could have hope that their sins would be forgiven and atoned for. Praise the Lord, that priest finally came in Jesus. Jesus, God's own son, became the great high priest who came into our sin and our need, not only to offer the perfect sacrifice, but to be the perfect sacrifice. He himself laid down his life to give his body as a substitute for our own. Though we deserve to die for our sin, he took our sin on himself. And then he rose from the dead to sit as the great and eternal high priest with God in heaven, interceding for us even now. As the author of Hebrews says, In Hebrews chapter 7, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he was offered himself. 
Friends, we have a priest who did it right. So now when we come to him in faith, believing in his sacrifice, revering him as our Lord, we're no longer wondering, will we live or not? Are we guilty or not? We're confident that we will live forever with him because he has met our need in himself. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, um, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, why not do that this morning and experience the freedom that he offers? And the Lord doesn't scold us when we sin, even when we fail to worship him rightly. Because of Christ, he welcomes us to come and get help. And what great news that is this morning. So then we've seen our great need to give God honor and reverence as we come to worship him. We've seen that it's a Christian leader's job to ensure that God's people are worshiping him in this way, rightly. And we've seen that because of Christ offering himself as the final sacrifice, God is pleased when we turn towards him in repentance and faith. Oh, you might be asking, sure, I I get that we should be reverent. Oftentimes when I come to worship, if I'm being honest, I feel as if I am just going through the motions. I desperately want to feel him, but sometimes I don't. Well, Steve Fuller is a pastor in Grace Church Abu Dhabi. He offers some advice for us. He says, Yosemite Valley in California is one of the most beautiful places on earth. To get there, you go through a tunnel which opens to an awesome view of the entire valley. Right at that tunnel opening, there's a parking area where everyone is out of their cars looking at the view saying, oh, and ah. Now imagine you drive through that tunnel, but when you emerge, all you see is fog. No awesome view, just thick, gray, soupy fog. That's what happens when we are not feeling worship. The beauty of God is right in front of us, but blocking that view is the fog of our unbelief, our worries, or pride, or something else. He goes on to say, Instead of doing something that's empty, we should follow the psalmist and wait patiently on the Lord. We pray and ask him to help us worship. Be honest with him about the dullness of your heart. And then ask for more of the Spirit's work to enable you to feel joyful praise, awestruck wonder, and heartfelt longing for him. If we will wait on the Lord, it's just a matter of time before the wind of the Spirit starts to blow, the fog starts to break up, we see the beauty of God revealed in Christ, and we worship. Friends, may the Lord renew our hearts and help us all be filled with more awe and joy as we worship him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your word that we've just heard this morning. Thank you for Malachi. We thank you and we praise you that you care deeply about us and about our worship, that you've made us to worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us worship you as you deserve. We pray that we might come together corporately on Sunday and in the way we live our lives through the week, that we'd be filled with awe for you. 
that we desire more and more to see your name honored and respected in our lives. And we thank you most of all, Lord, for Christ who covered our sin with his own blood shed for us. And so it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.